So as part of my quest to get all 250 teams and maybe all 250 home stadiums, I, I rolled into Northfield, uh, Minnesota on Saturday for the first time in, I don't know, probably seven years or so on a college football Saturday. And I did not realize that it was Jesse James days. It It is that that's the other thing that happens in <laughs> Northfield, Minnesota is not only do they have two Division three schools, but that's uh, ostensibly where Jesse James was caught and brought to justice. I assume this is correct. We'll have research go back and check it if it's not. So I'm I'm driving down the main drag. I'm sorry, some Route Three or something like that. I'm sure it has a name. And there's just a bunch of kids around, it, like running around in leather chaps and you know starter pistols or whatever cap guns it was like the most bizarre experience i've ever had running into driving into a division three town i thought you were going to say there are a bunch of kids running around robbing trains i mean they may well they may well could have i didn't tried not to stick around long enough to figure that out and that had been a little weird it was not as weird as chaps though no, and, and who knew that even that was not the most bizarre thing that I was going to see in Northfield on Saturday? How about sprinklers going off in the middle of a football game? I mean, I like that you got you went to a game, ostensibly to watch a game, and uh, you got a, the one of the weird occurrences of the day, which kind of was a weekend full of little odd occurrences, and I guess we'll get to a bunch of them on this podcast. I felt a little weird, and I kind of felt apologetic. In fact, I did apologize, I guess partially because I'm from Minnesota, but I apologized for... A having not I didn't apologize for having taken a video of the sprinklers going off during the game. I was just intending that to be a humorous aside on our Twitter account. I apologize for everybody else kind of picking it up and making it a semi pseudo viral moment out of Saturday's football. Well, it's not the first time that's ever happened, uh, but it is a very D three thing. Just like um, you know when you sign on to a to a broadcast in D three and it says there's no audio commentary and then then there is audio commentary or. You know, you spend 20 minutes trying to figure out how to get the the broadcast to your TV. There's there's just a bunch of things that we sort of we can all relate to because D3, as much as we make the big time where we are, we're sometimes running on a tight budget and those weird things happen. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, where we're in our 12th season of podcasting, our 20th season of covering Division Three football. We welcome you to the podcast number 202, where we will talk about week two of the 2018 Division Three football season, our edition for September 10th, 2018. And week two was a week where the comeback rained as much as the upset, though nothing rained as much as it did in, say, Indiana and Ohio, or a particular set of sprinklers. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan, or if it helps you visualize, I'm London Fletcher to his Bill Schrader. And if you listen to our preview pod on Friday, we picked out some games to keep an eye on among the 103 in week two, but this wasn't expected to be a week full of blockbuster games. But much more than week one, there were upsets, crazy finishes, and wacky things happening on the field from Wilkes to Marietta and Illinois Wesleyan to Albright and to where you were on Saturday, Pat. Yeah, we uh, talked on Friday about three top 10 teams all getting on the field for the first time, and we'll uh, we'll chat about that along with a, a good number of the other 100 games that uh, took place on Saturday. Uh, on the Monday podcast, we recap the week that was. We hand out our game balls. We talk about the teams rising and falling in the poll, look at the surprising results, and more. So let's start with the loss by UW Oshkosh, where we're presented with so many differing pieces of data that it's just not uh, clear what to make of it. 
Okay, so uh, seven to three game, right? Uh, Davenport defeats UW Oshkosh. Davenport is Division Two, sure, but it's a program in just its third year year of existence. It's second year at the Division Two level. To me, you could go crazy trying to parse those two items, or Davenport's 2017 record, or Davenport's other 2018 opponent, but the basic issue remains and will not change, at least not to me. Uh, UW Oshkosh is hurting on offense, and uh, the defense can only do so much. The, they didn't score enough points this week to uh, to help them out. No, they did in week one, and, and certainly the numbers in week two against Davenport look like those of an offense outclassed by a really strong defense. 1.3 yards per rush, 2.1 yards per play, 1 of 13 on third down conversions, 1 of 5 on fourth, and less than 23 minutes of time of possession. But it's not easy to hand wave those numbers away when Oshkosh wasn't much better in its opener against a D3 team. 3.3 yards per play against Carthage back in week one, 2 of 13 on third down, just 14 offensive points against the Redmond. Mitch Gerhardt and Dom Tottarello are still on board, so the simple conclusion is that this is mostly about the absence of Brett Casper at quarterback and perhaps Sam Mankowski at wide receiver as well. The Titans played Johnny Duranso and Kyle Radovich both at quarterback in week one, and it was mostly Radovich in week two, although Stephen McKinnon played two series in the second half. I think they're looking for an identity on offense right now, and they've got their third of five road games to open the season coming next week. And I don't know exactly what we'll learn when they play Lincoln, Missouri, which is another non-D3, but I think it's more about Oshkosh right now and less about the opposition. If this were the pros, Oshkosh could try to engineer a trade with Murray Harden Baylor. They played three quarterbacks also. All three of them played well in the crew's 91-7 win. Yeah, 91-7 at Albright. Uh, you remember Luke Porman, right? He was the number two quarterback at Mount Union, transferred to Belton, Texas this offseason. Didn't even get the start on Saturday. Start went to Jace Hammock, who played uh, or spent two seasons at uh, D1 FCS Abilene Christian before transferring to UMHB. Hammock started and threw for 292 yards. Uh, Poorman got in with about six and a half minutes to go in the first half, played a bit in the second and third quarter. Denarian Thomas, who we all knew was a wide receiver last year, got into the game as quarterback as well. But uh, before we dig any further into this game, Frank Rossi of In the Huddle, the D3 East Region podcast, was in Reading, PA, and sent us this interview with interim crew coach Larry Harmon. What did Coach Fredenberg tell you before you came up here to Pennsylvania? He told me to enjoy it and have fun and uh, make sure we come back with a win. Now, you chose to coach upstairs, uh, I understand, uh, from the box today. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, what, what matters to us is our team. And the least amount of distractions that can happen to our team is what, is what we're going for. Uh, coach Fredenberg is our head coach. I'm the defensive coordinator. I'm going to be up in the box and do my job. And uh, we got Coach has done a nice job of hiring really good staff. People that are normally on the sidelines were on the sidelines, and they did a great job today. Now, I know this is probably more of a Coach Fredenberg call at the end of the day, but I will still ask you the quarterback rotation situation. We had read about it coming into this game as probably a likely thing to happen, and you had two great quarterbacks going at it today. What was your assessment of how things worked at the quarterback position? I thought early our quarterbacks, both of them, uh, were having some nerves and not doing a very good job in the reading game. Uh, as the game got going, uh, they both settled in and, and, and did a really well job, great job. And, uh, you know, I still think Jace probably will grade out a little bit better than what, what Luke did, but I thought Luke did a good job with the reps that he had. And then Denarian uh, did some things as well. So, um, you know, that's going to be a Coach Fredenberg and Stephen Lee decision, kind of figuring out where, where the team's going to go from there. Uh, but after today, I would say that Jace is still probably – 
uh, the, the starter. I don't think he did anything to, to demote him. Which are you more proud of here, the 659 yards on offense or the only 140 yards given up on defense? And I know this is probably a gimme question as a defensive coordinator, so uh, go ahead, give me your answer. Well, I think 600 on offense. Uh, we, I'm not very happy with our performance on defense. Uh, we played some, we had two personal fouls. That's mm -hmm. just unexcusable. Um, we uh, did not tackle as well as we need to tackle. And uh, for us, to, to move on and be be as good as the defense as we've had in the past, we got to clean that stuff up. You got Sol Ross State coming up here, yes. Uh, and uh, you know, people look at this 91 to seven score and say, you know, it should be a slam dunk. Do you, what do you want your team to take away from this game, and what do you want the country to take away from it when they look at a score like this? Because obviously, it's going to raise eyebrows out right. there. So let's take uh, your team first. The, the, the 2018 Crusaders is a very athletic, very fast football team. Now, we graduated a lot of leadership on both sides of the ball, and so the leadership of this team took a big step today, uh, but that needs to continue to grow. And then this team has to be willing to be honest with themselves, look at this video and realize that the score isn't really how well we played and that uh, we need to go get better. Because if we don't, if we think that we're good right now. Uh, we're, we're gonna have a couple of hickeys on the record. So Larry Harmon, what an interesting interview. He kind of hit a couple of different tones there. You'd think uh, a guy who just won 91-7 would be thrilled, but in, in this case, it sounded like he was not so happy with his defense and uh, kind of shows you that Mary Harden Baylor has its eyes on the prize and not necessarily focused on this result here in, in week two, week one for the crew. Um, in week one of, of three where they're not going to be, uh, you know, Coach Fredenberg is not going to be there. Interesting that they basically kept the coaching alignment the same, just didn't have the head coach on the sideline, but uh, Larry Harmon's still up in the box. I thought his uh, his emphasis on on the defense playing better, you know, after a 91-7 game in some ways is, is just mind-boggling, but also thought that, uh, that the, the quarterback situation was maybe the most – interesting thing to come out of that game even though Markeith Miller had the, the great running game and uh and Mary Harden Baylor kind of does what it does also did he say hickey at the end of that interview I'm, I'm sure we could find someone to go parse uh individual milliseconds or microseconds of that uh, audio if we like yeah I know a guy maybe that's just a Texas way to say hiccup could be we'll go with that um if you know otherwise uh, tweet at us I, I think we have uh, several uh, Mary Harden Baylor listeners, so uh, I'm sure we'll uh, I'm sure we'll get some opinions on that. Yeah, the the quarterback situation though it is it's it's interesting, and of course that is what quote unquote media types focus on. It's also it's also what fans focus on, so that's why we focus on it. It is definitely interesting though. I mean, uh, you know, Poorman makes this uh, makes this transfer in order to get on the field and doesn't get on the field basically any earlier, really maybe about a half a quarter earlier than he would have for uh, for Mount Union but of course once upon a time Blake Jackson was a number two quarterback for Mary Harden Baylor and you know all that guy did was uh, go on to win a stag bowl and you know make a touchdown catch as a wide receiver in an NFL preseason game yeah and, and Luke Borman is a junior it's a long season and Mary Harden you know we sort of made these promises because we assumed that even though Mary Harden Baylor wasn't giving him the job outright that he would eventually win it um, but we also didn't know necessarily what else uh, Mary Harden Baylor had to work with. So if right. there's another quarterback uh, in the stable and he's playing well, 
you, you'd expect uh, the, the crew to stick with him until, uh, until there's reason not to. Can you imagine, too, and I know this is probably 15 weeks or 14 weeks uh, downrange before it happens, but, you know, you're, say, you're Mount Union or at least a Mount Union fan, and you know that the guy who is basically almost just about good enough to be your starting quarterback maybe just got beaten out by somebody who was even better. Basically, the point being that, uh, you know, Mount Union and Mary Harden Baylor could face each other sometime in December in Texas. It's a long time before we have a potential Mary Harden Baylor Mount Union matchup in Texas. And it is because they played last year in the Stag Bowl in Virginia. It's easy for us to envision the same thing happening again. But right now, for Mary Harden Baylor, uh, for us nationally, we're just trying to get to know who Jace Hammock is. Um, And we're also kind of seeing more of what we've seen over the years from Mary Harden Baylor, a very dominant running game. Uh, as much as Larry Harden didn't, Larry Harmon didn't seem impressed with it. Looked like pretty great defense against Albright on Saturday. It wasn't just the 91 that stood out, right? It wasn't 91-31. It was 91-7. So it looked pretty, pretty good defensively, even without uh, Tevin Jones. Yeah, that will be a situation that will definitely merit um, more observation, more consideration as the uh, season goes along. A lot of season left, of course. I know. Uh, I know. I just fast forwarded to the Stag Bowl, but uh, you know. That's what we do. We talk about stuff. Uh, how about a team that had high hopes coming into the season, now staring at an 0-2 start behind the eight ball pretty early? That's what Widener is right now. They lost to like coming 33-19. to I'm mentioning this up this high in the podcast because I feel kind of obliged after I really basically poo-pooed Lyco's chances in our Friday podcast. In fact, I hear the Wayback Machine now. Uh, like coming against Widener is a game that we can't not uh, mention, although it looks like it won't... Uh, be worthy of mention in the uh, final wrap-up once uh, games are all done. <laughs> Widener, just 153 yards of total offense in that game, not getting it done. I think part of what we're, we're leaping into now with the Friday podcast is, is we're putting uh, previews and predictions to some degree, although we've always done that with, with quick hits, uh, on the record. And so we're going we're gonna to look bad some, some Monday podcasts as well. But this one was, was a candidate for most surprising result, to be quite honest, because it wasn't just... Uh, Lyco beating Widener 33-19, and we talked on, on Friday about that being one of the you know rivalries that we have no real connection to, but we have a, a connection to it because it's sort of what inspired uh, uh, you to get the site off the ground. And uh, it's, it's just always almost always a good game, no matter which team is good. And uh, this, this one really wasn't. Lyco was up 30-13 to uh, late in the third quarter of this game. And Widener, you know, you'd think eager to bounce back from the, the double overtime loss to Rowan. Instead, uh, doesn't do so hot. Lyco, 50% on third down, 9 of 18. Uh, held Widener, to, you know, to under 200 yards of offense and, and was really fairly dominant. And, and that was pretty surprising to you and I. Tangent off of this for a second, because at the moment in our uh, kind of uh, outline of what we're, where we're going here, we uh, do not have a spot where we're talking about the Trinity-Harden-Simmons game. I think that we both thought this would be a really interesting game. Harden-Simmons ended up winning that one 42-33. They scored with a minute to go to make it a nine-point game. Otherwise, it had been 35-33 for a significant portion of uh, of the second half, if not maybe most of the third quarter. I basically tuned in when it was 35 to 33 and a lot of time left, and... I saw, you know, some turnovers go back and forth, and I saw a whole lot of nothing, except that uh, it was a, certainly an entertaining game. I think that's kind of what we expected. It's that classic case, Trinity, with a game under its belt, looked very good against 
McMurray versus uh, Harden Simmons. You know, a highly talented team, but also one in its opener. So, uh, you know, you expect a little bit of rust, and we, we've seen it across the nation. But, um, but you know, they got off to a pretty pretty good start in the first half offensively, 28 points at the half, and were able to, to hang on and win that 142-33. Jaquan Hempel, 27 carries for 258 yards and two touchdowns. Mark Reed, the quarterback, threw for 107, ran for 124, total of three touchdowns on the afternoon there i think it'd be interesting to see how trinity does in the saa also because i think the saa is uh is pretty wide open we saw hendrix lose to uh texas lutheran uh so you know we've got barry of course which lost a lot of guys from last year center should be in the mix uh you know Rhodes has looked pretty good here in the early going too but i think trinity is in a position to be in that contending uh, group as well and, and if you're one of those people who doesn't have uh a rooting interest for having gone to one of those schools or know somebody that plays or coaches there. You know, you want to see a program like Trinity, traditionally a, a great program, Stag Bowl team back in 2002 and a kind of a perennial playoff team in the 90s and the aughts. That's a word I never used, but I felt obligated to put it in there, right, instead of the 2000s. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a, you, you want to see that program uh, back and, and challenging for the SA title and and. This result against Harden Simmons certainly gives you gives you confidence that they may be pretty good this season, even though they didn't win on Saturday. Back to the rundown for a, a low scoring game between uh, Brockport and Ithaca. Brockport survives thirteen to seven. Golden Eagles kept things scoreless for the first fifty eight plus minutes, but left a lot of scoring chances hanging. Yeah, Pat. They uh, got into the red zone, kicked field goals. They didn't actually have a, a big problem with turnovers, but held the ball for for thirty seven minutes. And seemed like they were seemed dominant, but but really, uh, when you look back at this game, they weren't dominant offensively, which is what again what we expect. But it's also what we talked about in the Friday podcast that this is not just a team led by an All-American quarterback with a great offense. They're defensively pretty stout up front. They held Ithaca to 24 rushing yards and uh, 156 passing yards. So. Um, you know, and, and as you mentioned, Ithaca didn't score until about 58 minutes were gone. Made that thing interesting. And part of me says, boy, this result says more about Ithaca than it does about Brockport, ding, who ding. we already know is pretty pretty darn good. Ding, ding. I definitely agree with you there. Uh, Ithaca's in my top 20 for what it's worth, but uh, I'm, I'm but one voter. I also moved them in uh, to the very bottom of my top 25 as well this week. Uh, Justin Morrison, uh uh looked like he uh, hurt his knee pretty badly don't know what his status is for the rest of the season that's a running back for Brockport uh, that's something obviously where uh, you know Joe Germanario whose name we hadn't uh, yet pronounced or pronounced correctly in this podcast uh maybe one weapon he will not have on offense for the rest of who knows some period of time some period of time like this where I mentioned that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by nobody. You could be reaching an audience. Here's the audience. Let's just talk about the audience for a second. In a numerical standpoint, I keep talking about, you know, what this audience does, what the coaches, you know, have a budget or can influence budget to buy, you know, things that are in the millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Let's get away from that for a second. In the past 14 months, we have had 80,000 downloads of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Think of the number of times your message could get out there to this audience with those kind of numbers. And I'm just going to say that because you're missing out. It's 
time for game balls, and I've given my game ball to Mark Keith Miller, Mary Harden Baylor's running back. Keith mentioned him ever so briefly a couple of minutes ago, but he's the second Division Three player in as many weeks to run for six touchdowns in a game, and he did it on 21 carries for 97 yards in that 91-7 win. Uh, because it was such a blowout, Miller only played one possession in the second half. Uh, he also sent a shout-out for the occasion via Frank Rossi, and here's that clip. I want to shout out to the O-line, you know, they gave me six touchdowns. Shout out to the whole offense, defense, came out here and the coaching staff and all the Crusader fans out there. After Hunter Ham went 12 for 32 in a 34-17 season opening loss against Ohio Northern, Adrian turned to freshman quarterback Jack Werzer to start against Buffalo State. And all he did in his collegiate debut was complete all but three of his 20 pass attempts for 309 yards and six touchdowns. Werzer wasn't around when Jerron McGaw had 1,200 yards and 10 touchdowns last season, but he knew where to go with the ball, throwing five of his TD passes to the all-MIAA wide receiver. So they can share the game ball, or Werzer can have it. Either way, pretty darn impressive, especially against an Empire 8 opponent, and it might be the kind of development that makes the conference chase of frontrunner trying more intriguing than we anticipated. My team on the rise, on the rise in this week's poll is really uh, anyone who benefited from the five teams losing. Obviously, there's a bunch of room to move this week, but every time someone complains when their team gets passed by someone else who had an impressive week, uh, I'm talking to F&M fans here. This is not some straw man, right? F&M fans who complained last week when they dropped out because John Carroll passed them. John Carroll had a really great week. So for every week like that, there are weeks like this where you get to move up not because you did something impressive, but because somebody else lost. So I guess I'm really picking on FNM now. They haven't beaten Johns Hopkins yet, but at least for this week, the Diplomats are ahead of the Blue Jays, and uh, they're ahead of Susquehanna, too. You are kind of picking on them, uh, but otherwise, I'm right there with you. There was lots about my ballot that I didn't like this week, how high teams like UW-Whitewater and Trine floated because of all that other losing. But what, it, what that does is it sends me searching for who has impressed in the first two weeks. Two teams I landed on were Baldwin-Wallace and Springfield. The former I'll save for the Friday pod since they face Mount Union in week three, but the pride rushed for more than 400 yards for the second week in a row. Coming off a 10-win season and a stunning first-round playoff loss last year, they're off to a good start with 42 points in both of the first two weeks with a champion of a week, week conference-level opponent in week one, Western New England, who they beat 41-22, and then this past week, a team from the NJAC and Kane that they beat 42-0. So teams know Springfield is running, and they can't stop it. They've got just 14 passing yards all season, but we found out from the Kane game that the defense is pretty good, too. Yeah, if voters don't like trying floating up, don't move them up. Voters aren't required to move someone up just because a team ahead of them lost. I think trying is really high overall. I think they've really floated, and I think Barry is getting high as well. That's the point. You can't just leave number 12 blank because you don't think any team belongs that high. If you have 11 teams that you think are worthy of being in or around the top 10 and a bunch more you feel more comfortable with in the low teens or 20s, someone still has to slide in at 12. We've had this conversation on the podcast before, so I know it's not shedding new light. It's also early in the season, and these things tend to settle over time. Yeah, but the poll isn't a ladder, right? If you don't think someone is worthy to float up to 15, you know, which is where Trine is maybe on some ballots, then hop a team over them. Teams don't have to move up in lockstep. You mentioned Baldwin-Wallace. It'd be a bold move to put Baldwin-Wallace at 15, but not impossible. You mentioned you like Ithaca. Someone could put Ithaca at 15. Uh, someone could put John Carroll at 15. Someone could put UW Lacrosse at 15. They had enough of a week to merit jumping over trying. I just think that if a team starts to float, then you know, think of ways 
that you can make them not float. I know that was really, uh, really insightful and brilliant the way I said that. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. Here's our teams that are falling, whether you consider them stylistic or not. We talked about Oshkosh earlier in the podcast, so I thought maybe we should tackle uh, the other D3 top 10 team who lost to a scholarship team on Saturday. That's Linfield, who got on a bus to drive 700 miles to Helena, Montana to take on Carroll College. Honestly, Keith, no wonder they didn't play well. Uh, Even breaking that trip up over two days, spending a night in Spokane, Washington, that's just a long time on a bus. I don't know if we really learn anything about Linfield from them losing 21-14, to and I only nudged them down a couple spots on my ballot. Well, I'll bring up Oshkosh again for a team that'll take a fall, because I think it's worth mentioning that the fall in the poll from 4th to 15th is right on. And not reflective, really, of Saturday's Oshkosh result so much as it is voters no longer seeing a well-rounded elite team, but one that might have to lean on its defense to get through the YX league. The other fallers for me were fairly obvious, Johns Hopkins, Illinois Wesleyan, and Concordia Moorhead. Yeah, I think this is the thing about Oshkosh, and you mentioned it earlier, and I didn't have a chance to agree with you. I'm going to agree with you here, because if Oshkosh had beaten Carthage in a more, not even necessarily a more impressive fashion, but a more expected fashion, then you could look at the Davenport game as uh, as a blip, as you know, an anomaly. But now these are two results that really validate each other, and like you said before, make you kind of question the entire thing about Oshkosh right now. Yeah, and especially when you look at it in the context of what the other WIAC teams are doing, you don't want to get too far ahead, but you they come in with a reputation, right, of last year being one of the three top teams in the country, complete team, offense, defense, special teams. They were elite across the board, and you, we're just not seeing that so far this year. So as a voter, you kind of have a responsibility to to make your poll reflect that the nice, your ballot. The nice thing is if you're an Oshkosh fan – you're going to get plenty of opportunities to see your team uh, rebound in that category, not only in reputation, but also in the poll. they got plenty of games left in which they could do that. In among the talk about comebacks on Saturday afternoon, there was another one that was off the beaten path in Western PA on Saturday evening. That's when Geneva linebacker Tyler Ken intercepted three passes all in the second half as the Golden Tornadoes rallied from a 24-point third-quarter deficit to beat St. Vincent 32-27. St. Vincent actually scored the first 27 points of the game, but Geneva got 236 yards from preseason All-America pick Trawan Marshall and rallied just like a lot of other teams did in Week 2. And that is such a good off-the-beaten path. Geneva St. Vincent I want to get there man Uh, Geneva looks like it has a great game day atmosphere and I have to get back to a game in Western PA sometime soon my off the beaten path highlight is uh, one that you probably saw if you were on the site at all on Saturday uh, evening or Sunday Capital scored 37 points in the first half they gained 658 yards and lost in games like the one the Crusaders played against Marietta on Saturday, a 51-50 shootout that the Pioneers rallied to win, there are always wild stats galore. Marietta's Tanner Clark rushed for 311 yards and five touchdowns and had a 47-yard touchdown catch as well. Capital wide receiver Dartavia Stanford had seven catches for 153 yards and a touchdown, and he wasn't his team's leading receiver because David Barnett had 12 for 225 and a touchdown. But by far the best part was Capital, after scoring with 26 seconds left, opting to go for two. They'd blown a 37-28 lead and were on the road and probably happy to try to get the heck off the gray turf with a win. They took a shot at the end zone, got a pass interference to give themselves a second shot at the game-winning two-point conversion. But Garrett Davis and James Knox combined to stop Thomas Wibbler, who threw for 511 yards and five touchdowns, but will rue the one yard he and his offense could not gain. 
When I stood on that turf at one end zone a couple of weeks ago and looked down to the other end, no lie, Keith, I felt like I was on the moon or something. You know, I'm someone who typically experiences the full range of color. It was a complete shock to the senses. I think what they're doing there and what they're doing at Luther is is just a kind of a neat way to stand out. I love it. I'm all, I'm all in favor. I'm not in favor of red. Let's just draw the line right there. I, I just want to put that on the record. My most surprising result from Saturday or from this weekend is Bethany not only beating Grove City, but thoroughly handing them uh, by a 27 to 7 score. You know, the pack is one of those conferences, Keith, where the middle turns over quite a bit from year to year, right? You, there's this big, vast number of teams that are neither at the top end and neither at the bottom end, and the order could really change, and you could uh, kind of plus or minus three wins in any given season just, you know, without having a whole lot change. Except the thing is, after consecutive two and six finishes in the conference, I didn't even have Bethany in the middle of the pack. That's when I felt leader of the pack. Pat, you've uh, been very focused on the pack in Pennsylvania in your categories today. For some reason, I keep being drawn to Michigan. Uh, An Albion thrashing Franklin 56-35 was probably the most surprising win, but the category as written is most surprising result, and the most surprising result was Rowan coming off that double overtime comeback win against Widener, barely hanging on to beat Southern Virginia 20-17. to Now that's the Southern Virginia program that joined the NJAC four seasons ago and has five wins over that span. I'm not sure whether to, whether to credit the coaching of former NFL lineman Edwin Militalo for the Knights' improvement, but given the 38-9 loss to Christopher Newport in week one, I think it's a sign that Rowan might be a bit up and down. When we talked, when I talked with uh, Joe DePay, the previous head coach at Southern Virginia, uh, some March afternoon when I was in the general area for the Final Four, uh, I was introduced to Coach Mulatalo. He was in like his second week on the job, something like that. I don't know if he thought that this was the place he was going to be a head coach, but it was clear that uh, he wanted to continue in his coaching career and his, you know, increase his coaching trajectory. We're going to pretend that increase his co- coaching trajectory is something that makes sense outside of the walls of this podcast this podcast has walls yeah they're not quite uh so soundproofed or uh you know acoustically tiled as i'd like them to be i feel like we milked that for more than what it was worth stat of the week guilford scored 48 points in 47 minutes of its season non-opener against huntington and the Quakers kept it up in week two, scoring 61 points in 60 minutes in a win versus Methodist. Derek Bell, who had all of those touchdowns wiped off the board in week one, now threw another five touchdowns on the board and 24 carries and got 225 yards out of it. Well, we talked about all those sick numbers in the Mary Harden-Baylor game and Capital Marietta and all over the place. But how often do we excuse early season sloppiness because it's early in the season? Well, turns out the rest of you have no excuse. John Troxell's Franklin and Marshall team has played two games, scored 84 points, and been penalized just four times for 27 yards. That's like one drive at Wesley. All right. Chief shots aside, by contrast, Utica has been penalized a D3 worse 30 times for 357 yards, including 22 times in the opener and uh, eight more against Catholic this week. But Blaze Fagiano's team is also 2-0. Yeah, it only takes two cheap shots to get you more than 27 yards, that's for sure. Uh, that's the last of the categories. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. This is the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter, and our Twitter question for this one comes from Josh Floyd, at jfloyd6942, asking when will we see games start possibly moving up to Thursday due to impending weather? Hashtag D3FB. Thanks again for the hashtag. I tell you, Keith, that's a great question. I don't know 
how easy it is to move games up to Thursday or to Friday. But of course, you know this better than I because you're kind of in the path of it. We've got uh, a, a storm of some note headed out of the Atlantic and headed into the Mid-Atlantic. Yeah, as of this recording, it sounds like uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Southern Virginia. And this is more like the, the coast part of Virginia, not necessarily where the school Southern Virginia is. It sounds like they're going to get the worst of it. Uh, it's not just uh, a hurricane that's coming, but it's one behind the other behind the other, which um, may not may not necessarily be devastating, although they're asking you to prepare like it might be. But for for football, uh, yeah, you, you either move the game up or, um, you know, we've seen times where um, I'm thinking of Wesley and Christopher Newport several years ago where they just outright canceled the game yeah. because when these hurricanes hit, you know, they're preceded a couple of days by rain. Then you get the real bad hurricane day or two and then a couple of days of rain on the back end. So there's not necessarily a spot for you to wedge a game in. And, uh, you know, to, to be honest, that's a great question that we don't necessarily know the answer to. But you either um, you don't have a lot of options because it's very rare that teams have the same buy, especially this early in the season when they're not conference opponents necessarily. Um, so I think any school in the path. Uh, yeah, you, you could consider it, and I think they're they're mostly are trying to consider it, or they will be at least going through what the what the possible contingencies are. But uh, it's sort of every every two teams for itself. There's no across the board way to do this, and uh, some teams will play, some teams will postpone, some teams may outright cancel uh, because each the uh, each school have different concerns, and each the weather situation in each place will be a little different. Obviously, there's uh, there's other ways to, to go about it, as as Keith mentioned. You could play on Thursday. You know, maybe you take a chance that you could play on Sunday. That's not a that's not impossible either. Um, you know, let the let the storm pass through, and you know, ninety percent of us have turf in Division three football these days, so you don't have to worry too much about you know the the state of your field when you put teams on it shortly after a tremendous amount of rain. Schools are going to be more more concerned about travel at that and, uh, and the liability there. That's far more important, I think, than uh, even the, the safety on the field. If you can't put kids safely in a bus to get them there, then they're just not going to try to send them. Yeah. And one thing you mentioned that, that I hadn't thought of until you mentioned was that, say, in the case of someone like Shenandoah and Hobart, it, there may be an option of, of flipping the location of the game where, where one school is, is out, of, um, you know, out of the path of the, the storm or not quite as much in it. Uh, a lot of times they'll they'll both be in the same path, but uh, there are a lot of a lot of contingencies and uh, and and things to factor in, and each case is going to be different. Keep an eye out. We will uh, share any news of along those lines on Twitter. We'll also keep the uh, scoreboard page updated. I suppose that uh, Ferrum Averett game on uh, Saturday evening could be uh, in along the same lines. North Carolina Wesleyan is at Bridgewater on Saturday as well. Uh, maybe Waynesburg at Bethany. That's a little further inland. But uh, there's certainly a lot of possibilities for games that could get delayed, pushed up, pushed back, pushed off. Keith, we got the music. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. As I'm searching around at, at the end, you know, there's that period on Saturdays where a bunch of games are ending, and I was watching from home on Saturday, so I was flipping around. Saw the UW Stout block, um, some of the other neat things that happened at the end of games. Watching the end of Wisconsin Lacrosse and Illinois Wesleyan, Lacrosse is deep in uh, in IW territory. Basically lined up for the game-winning field goal, 
and uh, Illinois Wesleyan burns a timeout to try to ice the kicker. And then, I don't know if they did this on purpose to further ice the kicker without the use of timeouts, or it was just a real eager player coming off the edge, but uh, the guy must have left like four seconds before the snap. He did it. He, he left so early that he took the ball off the tee. He just bent over and took the ball uh, instead of blocking the kick. And uh, so obviously he was offsides. They lined up to kick it again and then offsides again. Not quite as bad. The second time he actually had to dive to block it. But clearly, you know, there was no celebration because everybody could tell uh, he, he left way early, blocks the, uh, the potential game winning field goal. And then finally, the third time, yeah, he leaves on time. The kick gets off. Lacrosse wins and uh, and and spoils uh, IWU's open. So while that is happening, or maybe about uh, twenty to twenty-five minutes before that happens, I'm at Carlton in in Northfield, Minnesota. I am knocking Stadium 102 off my list. I'm knocking off uh, Team 162. I hadn't seen Lawrence before. Uh, right at uh, three o'clock at the top of the hour, sprinklers start going off in about half of the field. And so, you know, everybody's kind of uh, laughing slash befuddled, uh, wondering if it's a, an elaborate prank. Um, but it, it kind of came at an opportune time. And we'll talk with Tom Jernell on Friday's podcast and we'll get his take on that on Friday, along with some other things. But uh, basically, at that point, Carlton had been leading and then gave up a bunch of points in a row, two touchdowns right before halftime and had uh, definitely were, was on its heels, had the momentum going in the other direction. Game is stopped for, you know, only about four minutes or so. But after that, 24 unanswered points. Carlton goes on to win that game 44 to 23. And without knowing at all what I'm talking about, uh, you'd have to guess, right, that those sprinklers are supposed to go off at 3 a.m. maybe? I think that they are meant to go off at 3 p.m. It just was an off-season uh, ah. program, and they nobody had thought to think that, hey, at 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon in September, we're going to be playing some games sometimes. Well, I'm sure the ground school will bounce back next week. Uh, Hobart bounced back from its 56-7 week one loss to Brockport with a 62-24 win against Morrisville State. A mere 87-point swing from week one and perhaps further confirmation that Brockport is that good while Hobart is not bad. UW-Eau Claire goes to 2-0 after an exciting double overtime win versus St. Norbert on Saturday night. This means that the Blue Golds have already matched the most wins they've had in any of the previous five seasons. From the same department of surprising 2-0 teams, FDU Florham. They uh, beat TCNJ 35-21 in week one. They won at William Patterson on Saturday, 31-17. So that's two two touchdown wins for FDU Florham, 2-0. And they may go 3-0. They got Alvernia on Saturday. Brand new program. The research department, a.k.a. Gordon Mann, uh, went through and determined that the last time uh, FDU Florham started a season 4-0, they started that season 4-0 against programs such as Marist and New Jersey City and uh, someone else who doesn't play football anymore. Um, Iona, perhaps? Swarthmore? Swarthmore. Oh, you know, you're right, Swarthmore. You're actually oh. right. Uh, the team that uh, snapped, that, uh, snapped that streak, Keith? Uh, I heard it was Randolph-Macon. Randolph-Macon. Yeah, that's fine. You can take credit for that. You're good. Oh, I'm not that old. I'm not going to take credit for this next one either. Uh, Hiram had three safeties versus Earlham. Uh, and that is uh, the other part of our research department. Thanks, Greg Thomas, for digging through the box score and pulling that one out. Earlham loses 44th consecutive time. There's a record kept for most losses in a row in Division Three. That is 50. Earlham has a possibility of uh, getting to that this season if they continue to lose, uh, but there's no record kept for the most safeties in a game in Division Three. 
How about this? Jason Couch, a former Alma player, represents the Scots hard. Coaching Saturday in a kilt and his team kilt Manchester. All right, I'm kidding. Uh, they scored a late touchdown to hold off a Spartans comeback and win 39-33. Uh, hat tip to the Reddit CFB account for, uh, for noticing the kilt. I, I thought I was the exclusive purveyor of bad dad jokes on this podcast. Yeah, well, I'm getting up there and I make my fair share of dad jokes for sure. My kids will tell you. <laughs> Uh, so that was the first career coaching win for Jason Couch. Also for Trevor Stellman, John Drock, Jason LeBeau, and Nate Milne. And uh, now Keith is going to tell us where all these guys coach. Couch is Alma, Trevor Stellman, Thomas Moore, John Drock, Wilkes. They had a nice overtime win. Jason LeBeau is Western New England, and Nate Milne is Muhlenberg. I just felt good. I called John Drock's voicemail at the office to learn how he pronounces his name. If you got a hang-up coach from uh, about uh, midnight Eastern time on Monday morning, that's on me. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 202, released on September 10th of 2018. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye on our rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, you know what I'm going to say, right? Rate it. Rate this podcast. You know, send some tweets and invite some people on Facebook, but rate it in Apple Podcast or Stitcher or beat down the doors of Spotify and get them to list us in their podcast, uh, you know, listing, this listing of podcasts where you list podcasts. Wherever you get your podcast, do the rating thing, because that'll help other Division Three football fans find it. You can also leave comments on our blog page. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Audio also from Frank Rossi. Thanks to uh, Greg Thomas and Gordon Mann for their help in their research on this podcast our theme music is by dj mentos whom you can find at djmentos.com thanks to our guests larry Harmon and mark keith miller for their time on this edition of our show and of course thanks to the creator of around the nation on d3football.com and my co-host keith mcmillan you can reach us to talk more about division three football on twitter use that d3fb hashtag that's how everybody sees it uh, i'm at d3football on twitter keith is at d3keith we have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering a post at d3boards.com, and you can follow d3football.com on Facebook, but not MySpace and not Friendster and not, uh, well, not Snapchat, but that's on me. Snapchat actually exists still and is useful, but I just, uh, I don't, I don't Snapchat for D3 football. Classmates.com. How about that? That's the only thing that's obsolete is Friendster and MySpace. Classmates.com. I spent a lot of time on Classmates.com in the 90s, I think, or the aughts. And we've come full circle. We've now used aughts twice. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.